This is the word of God. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of God. Thanks, Corey. Guys, good morning. How are we doing? You guys ready for some chicken soup for the soul? Hey, uh, thanks for being here. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm going to go ahead and dive in and pray, and we're going to do some work in Mark chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible, you can start finding that. Uh, Heavenly Father, you just wanna, we, we want to confess that there's tons of portions of Scripture that we just assume we don't need your help with, and that's like not true even when Scripture is the most clear and easy to understand. We still need you. We still need the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We still need you to take the truth and the power and the beauty of your word and apply it to our souls. And then we get to places like this in Mark 13 where we're just frankly humbled and we're baffled and we don't know how to approach your word unless you guide us. So we just ask for your mercy and your presence and your power. We ask that you would form us and teach us. And uh, Lord, I ask that at the end of today, we wouldn't be puffed up with the kind of knowledge that makes us arrogant but I pray that we would experience the kind of knowledge in our inner being that makes us more in love with Jesus and more peaceful in the midst of an anxious world. So form us and help us. We need you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, so I think it was 2019 when I finally broke down and had shoulder surgery. Uh, I had spent years with just a totally trashed left shoulder. Everything was wrong with it. I had a torn rotator cuff. I had a torn labrum. I had bone spurs, arthritis, because, you know, I like to party. And uh, for years, I had this great doctor who was willing to give me steroid injections in the shoulder. Steroid injections are magical. They're awesome. And yet they don't really fix anything. So I would get injections in my shoulder. And then against the advice of my doctor, I would go to the gym the next day and bench press with my trashed shoulder. And the day finally came where we had to have the talk and my doc said, buddy, no more shots for you. You have to go under the knife. You have to get this thing fixed so you can use it. And I knew leading up to the surgery that it would be a lengthy recovery. I knew it would be super painful. I knew on the short term, it would lead to 
more unhappiness, but on the long term, I knew that I had hope if I went through the process of my shoulder getting fixed. Um, that's kind of how I felt in preparing for Mark 13 and knowing that this text was coming. <laughs> like, here's what I guarantee, this is gonna be painful for me, this is gonna be painful for you, and this is gonna create for some of you guys lengthy rehab. You're, you're gonna have to think about what we're talking about for a while. Because today we're talking about a topic in Mark chapter 13 that is the hardest to read and the hardest to teach chapter in the entire gospel of Mark. And along with its parallel passages in the other synoptic gospels in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, Jesus teaches really difficult things. And historically, the things in these chapters have been interpreted in a lot of different ways. And so what I want to do today and over the next three weeks total is I want us to walk through this chapter. And I want us to do our best to try to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. And I want to try to make some pastoral applications about the topic of eschatology. Eschatology is a big word, but it's an important word. It's defined as the doctrine of last things. The doctrine of last things. Uh, Wayne Grudem points out that eschatology comes from two Greek words. The first word is eschaton, which means last or final, and logos, which means discourse. And you may think that this doesn't really matter, talking about in things or last things. That's just for theological geeks. That's for people in seminary. But the truth is this. The truth is the topic of eschatology is connected to some of the most important things that human beings have to wrestle with. If we don't have a healthy biblical eschatology, we're going to be surrounded by the evil and suffering of this world with no understanding of how God is breaking in through his son Jesus to ultimately make everything that's tragic and ugly become beautiful and good. Without an understanding of eschatology, you won't know what the world's for. You won't know what your body is for. Without understanding some measure of eschatology, you won't understand the person and work of Jesus and just how cosmic the resurrection of Jesus really is. That Jesus wasn't just raised from the dead so that you could be forgiven for your sins, although he was, praise be to God, we need that. But Jesus was raised from the dead as the beginning of a new creation. Meaning through the resurrection of Jesus, all things will be made new. So the topic of eschatology is actually really practical and it's really important. But it's also fraught with a lot of dangers. And there's two main dangers I want to point out today, two traps we could fall in when we talk about in things. The first is being excessively dogmatic and overly confident about passages of scripture that are hard to interpret. And what can start to happen is we can kind of have a bit of swagger when it comes to our eschatology that can lead to a lack of charity and a lack of kindness to other Christians with whom we might disagree. And we don't want to do that. I, I want to just state the obvious. The entirety of Christian theology is supposed to lead to humility and love. And so straw man arguments in which we just kind of interact with the worst possible form of different beliefs of other Christians has no place in Christian dialogue, right? Condescension has no place in Christian dialogue. We are to be charitable, we're to be kind, and we're to be charitable and kind even with people that we disagree with. The second thing that can happen with eschatology 
is the opposite error. We can be lazy and passive and just punt on it altogether. Um, there, there is an old joke about eschatology, which is really stupid. It's like the wasteland where dad jokes and theology jokes meet and people go to die. And, and the old joke about eschatology is I'm pan-millennial, pan-millennial. The millennium is the reign of Jesus. There's different beliefs about what that means in different parts of scripture. And the pan-millennialist, he'll say this. Well, I just believe it's all going to pan out in the end. Ha ha, funny joke. Stupid way to, to approach eschatology. All right, and here's why it's a stupid way to approach eschatology. Because if the prophets talked about in things in the Old Testament, and if the apostles talked about in things in the New Testament, and if our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, took time to teach on in things, and if the Holy Spirit, who inspired the writing of Scripture and who protected the entire process of canonization so that we could get this book, which is made up of 66 different books, which is the authoritative word of God, his disclosure to humanity, then we shouldn't just be lazy. We shouldn't punt. We should actually think and wrestle and strive to understand through the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Super. Awesome. Great. Responsive amen. I appreciate your help. Okay, so, so let me just say up front, as we dive in over the next three weeks, there will be some people that get offended. Let me tell you two categories of offense so that you can choose your own adventure and decide how you want to get mad at me. Two categories of offense. Um, the first potential area of offense will be for people that were raised in the church and older Christians who were taught in sort of the mainstream of evangelical theology, a form of eschatology that's really new. Um, it's called dispensationalism, and I don't have time to define all the terms today, but we're going to be talking a bit about that over the next few weeks. And those of you that were taught dispensational theology, I love you. I just think that that's not a healthy way of interpreting Scripture. All right, so what happens with dispensationalists is ideas that originated in 1830 that weren't a part of historic teachings in the church gained prominence in the 1900s and really, really became sort of mainstream in some of our seminaries, including places like Dallas Theological Seminary, and then jumped into the mainstream of the SBC and into the Assemblies of God and into various Pentecostal branches of the church. And man, I love my friends that are dispensational, but I just want to tell you, I would encourage you to question those beliefs in light of scripture as we talk over the next few weeks. The second category of offense is the opposite. So when I preached on eschatology in the early days of our church and we walked through a chapter like this, everybody that was mad at me were all people that were taught dispensational eschatology. Now things have shifted. And let me tell you the primary group that's going to get mad over the next three weeks in this day and age, it will be new Christians and non-Christians that are shocked and offended by how upfront Jesus is, not just about eternal judgment, but about temporal judgments. Eternal judgment's hard to stomach. It's hard to wrestle with. The paradox of God, like, and it is a paradox that God is described as love, that he's merciful, that, it's, that he's kind, that his heart for the world is that none should perish, um, that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to hold that truth in tension with the truth that God is also just, that he is the judge, and that he doesn't tolerate sin, evil, and corruption results in a kind of nuance that's really lacking and rare among a lot of us. And so the idea, which is really popular to talk about Jesus in this way, the idea that's sort of a, a truncated, non-nuanced Jesus where he's just an itinerant, homeless Jewish rabbi. And, and by the way, like there's truth in that, right? Jesus was homeless. 
He is Jewish. He was a rabbi. But to just let the entirety of your view of Jesus be that negates the reality that he's also the glorified, resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. And in the Old Testament, when we read that God is described as a warrior and that God actually brings judgment against, like, Egypt through plagues, what we find is that in Jesus, Jesus also is a warrior, that Jesus does contend with evil, that Jesus does at times, draw the sword of his mouth and bring destruction. And so I want you to stick with me. I want you to stick with us over the next, the next three weeks as we talk about this. And I want to acknowledge that this is in some ways going to create more questions than answers. And we want to help you with that. So in community groups, we'll be processing. And then, as Dylan said, my good friend, Sam Storms, who's been such a help over the years to our church and such a dear friend to us, Dr. Storms is going to be here on March 23rd for us to talk about eschatology, and he's been really helpful in even preparing for this sermon. So I hope you join us for that. Now, before we dive into chapter 13, let's state what all Christians believe together, because that's really important. That's a good place to start. All historically Orthodox Christians, when it comes to end or last things, can state four things that we're all on the same page about. Number one, all historically Orthodox Christians believe in the second coming of Jesus. Amen? Jesus will return visibly on the last day, and that's really good news. Secondly, all historically Orthodox Christians that believe the Bible believe in the ultimate destruction of sin, evil, and death through the person and work of Jesus. We all believe that. We believe that there's a day where death will die. We believe that there's a day where sin is not only defeated, but sin is eradicated. We believe that Satan and the kingdom of darkness are on a short lease and will ultimately be destroyed. Thirdly, all Christians that believe the Bible believe that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, that every tear will be wiped away, that in the resurrection of Jesus, all things will be made new and connected to that. Fourthly, all Christians that believe the Bible believe that everyone who trusts in Jesus will be raised bodily on the great day. You will have a glorified body without sin, without death, and you will be in the presence of God forever. Not in a disembodied weird Simpsons version of heaven where you just float on clouds and play harps, but in a new heavens and in a new earth where you will be an embodied spirit with a body that doesn't get sick and that doesn't age, that experiences physical sensation, but does so without sin limiting it. So those are all things that we stack hands on, and that's really amazing that all Christians historically agree on those things. Now, as we dive into chapter 13, today is the intro. I want to set up the context of this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. I want to show you a few things in our text today. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus made a prophetic exit and a shocking statement. This has been described as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives. And this teaching on the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives, starts with not just what Jesus says, but what he does. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, if you write in your Bible, circle those words. As he came out of the temple, that's not just a random throwaway phrase. Jesus leaving the temple is a profound witness against the apostasy of the temple. Just as we talked a few weeks ago about the cursing of the fig tree, which was connected to the cleansing of the temple, Jesus leaving the temple is an abandonment of the old system of sacrificial worship 
that had been corrupted over the years. Jesus comes out of the temple, and then it tells us that one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be torn down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Okay, so track with me. Uh, what Mark is taking great pains to make sure that we see is that Jesus doesn't just leave the temple in the course of everyday activity like you're going to leave this building or you're going to leave brunch later today. Jesus leaving the temple and then des- describing the kind of destruction he's going to bring in which not one stone is going to be left on top of another is Jesus declaring that the judgment of God through him is coming to the temple. As he leaves the temple, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel that the glory of the Lord went up from the city and the heart of the city was the temple and stood over the mountain, which is the east of the city. As Jesus leaves the temple not to return again and as he declares that it's gonna be destroyed, he's making a shocking statement that the very presence of God, that the power of God, that the place of God's address on planet earth will forever no longer reside in a brick and mortar building, but that building will be completely demolished and there will be a new kind of experience with the presence of God. And what you have to understand is that for his hearers, for first century Jewish men, for these guys, for Peter and for James and for John and for Andrew, this statement would have been completely mind-blowing. First century Jewish men didn't think that the temple would be destroyed until the entire world was destroyed. The temple was the center of religious identity. It was the center of national identity. It was the place of sacrifice, the place of worship. The temple was the place that at times in the past, the presence of God showed up in a thick cloud and people couldn't even stand before God. The temple was powerful and not only was it powerful, it was it was an absolutely monumentally beautiful and giant building. It covered a huge portion of the city of Jerusalem. There were single stones that made up the temple that were bigger than houses. It was a feat of engineering. It was glorious. It was gorgeous. And Jesus is telling these first century Jewish men, the place that you think defines your religious identity the place that you think defines your national identity, the place that you think is the very essence of God's address on planet earth is going to be completely destroyed where not one stone is going to be left standing on another. Hey, listen, like we read these words and we don't spin because it's 2,000 years later. And our religious identity and our national identity is not caught up in that brick and mortar building, but put yourself in the shoes of those hearers. They would have been terrified. They would have been anxious. They would have been frustrated. They maybe would have even been enraged at what Jesus is saying. This leads us secondly, number two, Jesus was answering those disciples' questions. Those disciples' questions. Look at verse four. They say, tell us when will these things be? When's the temple going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? When is this going to happen? And how will we know so that we can be prepared for it? When's it going to happen? And how will we be prepared for it? Now, track with me, because this is, this is where most misinterpretations of this chapter jump off. 
Jesus is not answering all of your questions and all of my questions about the end of the world in chapter 13. Jesus is not answering every question that we might have about dates and deadlines of the second coming in chapter 13. What Jesus is doing in chapter 13 is he's answering the questions of those disciples. And what I want you to see is at least the majority, if not the entirety of chapter 13, is about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple that will take place in 70 AD as Titus and Roman armies surround it and burn it to the ground. Jesus is speaking to them about their question and their concerns. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not numerous applications about the second coming, about the end of the world, about the way Christians should operate as wakeful and alert and patient and waiting people. But though there are numerous applications in this text for all of history and the end of the world, the majority of Mark 13, if not all of it, is about the events from 33 AD as Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which was an epoch-shifting, cataclysmic change in the way that God deals with humanity. Now, just to drive this home, part of the key to understanding this entire chapter is found in verse 30. Verse 30 is an interpretive clue that we got to get right if we're going to read this chapter correctly. Here's what Jesus says in verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, there's been a lot of hermeneutical origami people have tried to do with the word generation. People have tried to argue, well, he doesn't really mean generation in terms of time. He doesn't really mean the people that will be alive during the midst of him hearing those, them hearing those words, he just is referring to the entirety of the Jewish race. The problem, though, is that that is not how the word generation is used anywhere in the Gospels. All right, let me read to you from Dr. Storms. This is helpful. Some try to evade this point by arguing that the word translated generation actually means race and that Jesus, therefore, was simply saying that the Jewish race would not die all these, until all these things took place. But this would require the Greek word genos, whereas the word here is genia. Furthermore, the word genia occurs 27 times in the gospel and never once means race. The word generation is used elsewhere in the gospels of those living in Christ's day. Every time the words this generation occurs in the gospels, it means Jesus's contemporaries, i.e. the sum total of those living at the same time that he did. This is really important. As we dive into this chapter, there are places at the end of this chapter that could possibly be about the second coming. We're going to talk about that in three weeks. But the majority of this chapter, especially what we're going to cover this week and next week, is Jesus talking about this massive change in human history, this event of judgment, this event where the way God deals with the nations changes from being a brick and mortar place that was to be his address on planet Earth to a new temple who is Jesus and Jesus's people, the church spread out through every nation, every tribe and every tongue. And if we're gonna understand this, we have to read it in context. We have to hear it as Jesus's hearers heard it. This leads to the third thing. Jesus warned them to not be alarmed by the beginning of birth pangs. And here's the irony. The very things Jesus said shouldn't alarm the the disciples because they were not signs of the immediate destruction of the temple or of Jesus' imminent return are the very things that are pulled from the news to try to argue that Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. 
right? So the very things that Jesus is saying, hey, guys, these aren't signs that the temple's about to be destroyed or that I'm about to return. These are the beginnings of birth pains. When you have theologians that are trying to interpret history in light of newspapers, those are the very things that they use to try to argue for the opposite of what Jesus is telling his disciples. So let me go through and list these. First, he mentions false messiahs. Look at verse 5. And he began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now track with me. Throughout the entirety of human history until Jesus returns, there will be false prophets and false leaders. That's just a part of human history. But in particular, from 33 AD to 70 AD, that was a time of massive amounts of false messiahs and false prophets that led tons of people astray. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, talked about during the time of Nero, the rapid rate of false prophets that were arrested on a daily basis. Eusebius, who was one of the first Christian historians in the early days of the church, in his book, Ecclesiastical History, also refers to the prevalence of false messiahs in this period. It was a time of upheaval. It was a time of change. It was a time where a lot of people with a lot of different agendas tried to gather massive followings by claiming that they were the Messiah and that they spoke directly from God. And Jesus is saying, hey, they don't, and don't let them freak you out. Then Jesus mentions wars and rumors of wars. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, I could list so many different references on the period from 33 to 70 AD that would show you just how much turmoil and upheaval there was, but let me just briefly mention a few things. In Caesarea, during this period, 20,000 Jews were murdered. In another city nearby, 13,000 Jews were killed. In Alexandria, 50,000 were killed. 10,000 were slain in Damascus. And eventually, in 40 AD, Emperor Caligula... He decreed that an image of him, a statue of him, would be erected in the Jerusalem temple. And the Jewish people revolted against that. They said no to Caligula. And what that resulted in was this massive amount of like palpable anxiety that at any day, Rome was going to show up and wage war. Rumors of wars. In fact, they were so anxious. There was so much upheaval, so many different conflicts globally in the ancient world in this point that there were seasons where Jewish people in the area around Judea stopped planting crops and stopped harvesting because they expected that at any day, at any day, war would break out. Then Jesus mentions earthquakes and famines. Again, throughout all of human history, there will be cataclysmic disasters. There will be earthquakes and famines. But in the period of 33 to 70 AD, in this moment of transition, it was particularly tumultuous. We read in Acts chapter 11 of a great famine that resulted in the Antiochian Christians raising funds and offering relief to Christians in Judea. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius both mention the prevalence of famines in the period around 51 AD in Rome. There were also recorded earthquakes in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, Samos, Apamea, Campania, and Rome. And there were multiple cities during this period that were literally destroyed by earthquakes. You had Laodicea, which was destroyed. Hierapolis was destroyed. Colossae was destroyed after the quake of 60 AD. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not 
weird events that happen. There will be tornadoes. There will be earthquakes. There will be tsunamis. We live in a world that is groaning under its brokenness. But in this particular time, Jesus is saying, when crazy things happen, when there's earthquakes and when there's wars, don't think that that means that the destruction of the temple is imminent and don't think that that directly means that I'm immediately going to come back. This is all stuff that's the beginning of birth pangs. Then he mentions persecution. Look at verse 9. Be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Um, if you've read the book of Acts, that's exactly what happens. Christians are persecuted. They're, putting out, they're put out of synagogues. They're sometimes killed. They're arrested. And then Jesus mentions something that would seem to indicate that it would be impossible for that to happen in the first century between 33 and 70 AD. Look at verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. In Matthew chapter 24, which is a synaptic gospel, which means it's a parallel account of the same events and teaching, Matthew records this. Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, let me be really clear. Jesus gave us the great commission. We're to love all nations and to go to all nations. But what happens a lot of times is Christians take the teachings of Jesus here to imply that we need to hurry and go preach to all nations so that Jesus will quickly come back because that's the beginning of birth pangs. But I think what Jesus is doing, not discounting one single bit that we need to go to every tribe, every nation, every tongue, that's the demand of Jesus for the proclamation of the gospel. What Jesus is saying is that before the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD, there would be proclamation of the gospel in the known Roman world. Let me give you some evidence for this. The Greek word that's translated whole world is a translation of a term which literally means inhabited area. It's a standard term at that time used in the Greek world for the Roman Empire and for the parts of the Roman Empire that were civilized. It's not referring to the kind of globalism that we have today. It's not whole world, meaning like we include all the seven continents. We know every little bit of it. We have GPS. We got satellites. We got Google Earth. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is using the word the way they used it in the first century to describe the known Roman world that people were familiar with. The same Greek word is used in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, that doesn't mean that Caesar Augustus is demanding people in China, current-day China, get registered, or people that were tribes in North America currently get registered. It's speaking about the known world of the time, primarily the Roman Empire. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, says that one of them, named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And he was talking, Luke tells us, about what took place in the days of Claudius, meaning it was localized. It was all the world, meaning the Roman Empire. Acts chapter 24, verse 5 says this, We have found in this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's not saying that Paul was stirring up riots in places that those people didn't even know about. It's talking about the known Roman world. Writing before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 23, 
that the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 18, Paul says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world, speaking of specific Christians in that particular day, in that particular age. The point being, Jesus is saying, there's a lot of things that are the beginning of birth pangs. There's things that are happening, that are unfolding, that are historical events, and those things are taking place, and you shouldn't let those things freak you out or cause you anxiety. You should trust me, because the end is not yet, meaning the destruction of the temple. This leads to number four. Now we get to get to some really helpful application for us today. Look at verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all by my, for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, track with me. We want to end today, we want to end today by thinking about what these words meant to those original hearers in the first century, but also thinking of what they mean for us. What Jesus is saying is that those particular disciples and their friends that are asking these questions about when is this going to happen and what will be the sign it's about to happen, Jesus is going to be really honest about how much pain they're going to endure, how much chaos they're going to see, how much blood's going to be shed, just how chaotic and scary and dark things are going to be. But in the midst of all that, there's unbelievably good news for them and us. In the midst of a world on this side of the second coming that's going to be dark and messed up and broken and sinful, let me remind you of a few things that you need to take with you. First of all, Jesus cares enough about his disciples to tell them the truth. Jesus loves his disciples enough to not just talk us into being his followers with fake promises with sticks and carrots, Jesus loves his disciples enough to promise them that following him is going to feel like being on a narrow road. Jesus promises that in this world we will have trouble. Jesus doesn't give his disciples false hope in riches or the approval of man or an easy life. In fact, he says to these disciples, which applies today, you're going to have family members that hate you and disown you because you become a Christian. People won't understand you. They won't get you. You're going to go through painful things. Jesus is not the easy button. Um, my son is wrestling with next steps in his career. He's going to graduate high school in May. He feels called to join the armed services. He's prayerfully considering whether or not he's called to be a Marine or go Army. He's thinking about all those questions and has a deep amount of respect for those branches and the others as well. And uh, it's been fun and interesting going with him to meetings with recruiters. And thankfully, all the recruiters we've met with have been men of honor. They've been good guys. They've been, they've been honest about the challenges of joining the military. But imagine if you went to a recruiter as an 18-year-old and the recruiter just straight up lied to you about what it would be to be a Marine. The recruiter was like, hey, do you like hot tubs? You are going to love Fallujah. Do you... Do you enjoy long walks on the sand and umbrellas in your drink? You are going to really, really enjoy filling sandbags and digging trenches. 
Like, I, I noticed that you enjoy hiking in the outdoors. Have you considered Afghanistan in the winter? Like, you, you would just be set up for crushed expectations and no hope. Like, a good recruiter is going to tell you, hey, man, this is a worthy calling, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be in danger. You're going to be in places that you'd rather not go. You're going to have to do things that you'd rather not do. It's going to take discipline and training and pain, blood and sweat and tears. Listen, we have too many Christian pastors that are like deceptive military recruiters about following Jesus. That tell people what they want to hear, that make Jesus sound like a life coach whose one objection is to get you the life you need to be happy. Or that promise you that if you just follow Jesus, you'll get the spouse you always dreamed of, you'll get the life you always wanted, your career's going to go great, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I just want to say, they don't get that from the Bible. Because Jesus promises that to follow him is to bear a cross and to learn to die. Now that doesn't mean it's all morbid and dark and terrible. He's infinitely worth it. And there's a kind of joy in following Jesus that is as greater above happiness as like marriage is greater than cohabitation and playing house. There's a way in which, there's a way in which following Jesus is so powerful and good and formative and eternal that it makes all the sufferings worth it. But nonetheless, to follow Jesus is to experience pain. And in this room right now, there's all kinds of places where there's pain. Physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, messed up marriages, parents worried about children, people grieving loved ones. And if you buy into the popularized version of Christianity light that makes Jesus your life coach, you can start to think that he's forgotten you or abandoned you. But then when you open scripture, here's what you find. He said this stuff would happen. He guaranteed it would happen. He told us we would have trouble. He didn't lie to us. He didn't manipulate us. In addition, Jesus doesn't ask his disciples to face dark days alone or unassisted. Here he talks about when they're brought before the synagogue and they have to give an account of Jesus to trust the Holy Spirit who will tell them what to say. Elsewhere in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us, that we're to teach all nations and to observe all that he commanded. And then he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's what's awesome. Jesus is saying, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You will be rejected even by some of your closest family members if you follow me. But I will never leave you. I won't forget you. I'll be with you in the midst of the fray. The Holy Spirit was sent to be the very presence of Jesus among his people. And what that means is you may be going through something really painful, but if your hope is in Jesus, you're not alone. Even if you feel lonely, you're not alone. Jesus asks his disciples to face dark days, but not alone or unhelped. In addition, application for them and us, Jesus asks his disciples to care more about his love and obeying him than we care about the world's hatred. Like, hey, you can't live your life for the approval of man and follow Jesus. You just can't. And, and you kind of you could get away with that even 10 years ago a little bit. But increasingly, you just can't. To love Jesus, to follow Jesus is going to mean that coworkers think that you're weird, that boyfriends, girlfriends think you're weird. Sometimes spouses are going to think you're weird. Sometimes parents are going to think you're weird. 
to really obey Jesus, to love Jesus requires that you elevate his approval above the approval of anybody else and that you live your life for an audience of one. Now, that doesn't mean that we start to become jerks and don't care about people. Like, it's not, it's not that weird, rebellious, well, I just don't care what you think, like, 16-year-old nonsense. But it's the sober reality knowing that, like, ultimately, through the gospel, you have the approval, the delight, and the, and the absolute joy of the living God who created you, which means you can, you can stop living your life like you're up for vote. You can stop living your life like the approval of your extended family or your friends or your coworkers is the thing that's going to satisfy you or name you or fix you because it's just not. And there will be times where it will be a zero-sum game where if you're going to obey Jesus, it means you're going to incur the displeasure of people around you. Jesus is honest about that. And then lastly, I'll share this and then we'll pray. Jesus commands his disciples to endure but he also makes endurance possible. He says, those that endure to the end will be saved. And when you read the New Testament, here's what you find. At every turn, there's exhortations and encouragements to endure, to finish the race, to not shipwreck your faith, to not be led astray by various false teachings and philosophies and empty beliefs and all kinds of weird demonic strategies to distract you and lead you away from Jesus. And there's this repeated command in scripture to endure, to endure, to endure, to finish. And what Jesus is doing in commanding us to endure is not just saying, hey, it's all up to you. Good luck. I hope you make it. What Jesus is saying is that you have responsibility to endure, but ultimately the living God is preserving you and working in your life to help you endure, which means it matters. It matters that we think about our deathbed. Like, that, that didn't have to be a morbid, weird thing. And I'm not saying you should think about your deathbed 24-7. That would be weird. But it, it matters that you think about what kind of person do you want to be as you take your last breath? What's the most important thing to you? Is it being found in faith? And what do you want it to be like when you stand before Jesus face to face? Like, do, do, do you want more than anything else to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? more than you want money, more than you want pleasure, more than you want comfort, more than you want a spouse. Jesus is commanding his disciples to endure while telling him it's going to be really hard, but the context of their endurance is his grace and his mercy, which will never leave them. And it won't leave us. You're not on your own to endure, but you are commanded to endure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray all across the room that you would take the goodness of Jesus, that he loves us too much to leave out the fine print and just give us renewed faith that helps us finish the race. God, I've been thinking today about um, the thing my old pastor used to always say that's just not true. That he, he would say repeatedly, if you're in God's will, good, thing happen. good things will happen. If you're out of God's will, bad things will happen. Which is like just not what you told us. You told us that often we'll be in your will and bad things will happen. But it doesn't mean you've abandoned us or forgotten us or rejected us. And I just pray that today you would help us to have greater courage in the midst of a chaotic world. 
Lord, even though the birth pangs Jesus described led up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, God, we still are in a world that has birth pangs. We're waiting for you to come back. Creation's groaning. So would you help us to be the kind of people that keep our eyes on you, that trust you, that follow you. Feed us now as we come to this table. Refresh us and renew us, we pray. Amen.